uh, we've been working our way through Romans 11, um, or Romans in general, and working our way through Romans 11, finish up Romans, second half of Romans. Uh, it feels like forever since I've seen you guys, it feels like it's been weeks, uh, more than one week. Um, I figure Romans 11 does that to you. I figure the Phillies losing the World Series does that to you. Um, we lost like two championships in the span of like four hours if you guys watched the Union too, so that was heartbreaking. Um, rough night, <laughs> but we'll get through. Um, quick recap of last what we talked about last week. Um, then we'll we'll continue where we left off. So uh, Paul had just finished uh, really affirming that God is still faithful despite what they all see in Israel, that Israel's not accepting the Messiah. They continue to reject the Messiah. Um, Paul also supported the claim that there was a remnant in, in his day, just as it was in Elijah's day. In Elijah's day, God said it was 7,000 left that hadn't turned their knee to Baal. Uh, in Paul's day, Paul was pointing to the fact that there's a remnant still in his day, and I think that continues through the church age. Paul also made clear through all of that that salvation was not by being of a certain ethnicity or a people group, but that for everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, it is still by grace and grace alone through uh, and faith in Jesus Christ. So not by works, not by ethnicity, nationality, anything like that. Then we ended in verse 11 uh, and explaining what God was doing in response to Israel's rejection and hardening, which was that he was bringing salvation to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world. Uh, in other words, or that he was also doing so to make Israel jealous. Uh, in other words, to draw, draw Israel back to himself. We talked about the beauty in that ultimately God's desire to draw all people to himself, uh, to do that by whatever means necessary. And of course, we know at the end of the you know, all time, and we realize the kingdom someday, it'll be made up of all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. And uh, so we're going to see Paul continue to explain that very thing, how all people from all different walks of life, backgrounds, ethnicities, nations, uh, can all come into one family of God. Um, before we do that, let's pray um, and help, have the Lord just be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for waking us up this morning, Lord, giving us this day that you've created. Uh, Father, we just acknowledge you and who you are right now, just as holy and righteous and our Savior. Um, I pray that you would just help me uh, remove all the distractions in me, uh, remove the pride from me, the ego from me, Father, and just have you um, speak through me and teach what you want to teach, Father. I pray you remove distractions from all of our hearts so that we would just learn from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Cool. All right. So starting again, starting off, starting where we left off. Uh, in verse 11, he says, I say then, did they stumble as to fall? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So again, we, we, we dealt with this rhetorical question last week. Uh, I'm getting kind of used to Paul asking these rhetorical questions. It's something he likes to do. Um, and he just finished talking about Christ as a stumbling block for the Jews. Uh, we just quoted scripture just a couple verses before that um, regarding God hardening Israel in this, you know, rejection, this mass rejection in Israel of the Messiah. And so talking about a stumbling block, he asked kind of a, a pretty logical question, which is, did they stumble as to fall? What happens when you stumble? Potentially you fall, uh, or even likely you fall. Uh, so Paul's answering this very logical question. And he says, no, Israel's not falling. It's not a permanent falling away from God. They're not permanently cut off from God or anything like that. So Paul just affirms that uh, before we move forward here. And so in verse 12, 
Paul again further explains this. He says, now if their transgression, Israel's transgression, is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? So again, he's talking about Israel's falling away, Israel's hardening, Israel's rejection, whatever you want to call it, is riches for the world. So now that Israel has fallen away, there's, there's, and he kind of continues this language farther on, that there's now room for the Gentiles. And and so this word riches, you see riches here over the next couple of verses, um, is speaking about the salvation that has come to the Gentiles. And their failure, again, this transgression of Israel, is riches for the Gentiles. So the world, Gentiles, same thing. Uh, so he basically says the same thing twice. He says, how much more will their fullness be? Again, another rhetorical question, maybe one so obvious that he didn't even use a question mark, he used an exclamation point. Um, so the idea here is to see the, the salvation that's come to the rest of the world uh, because of Israel's rejection and hardening, imagine what it would be in the benefit to all the world if they were drawn back to the Father. Um, so just imagining, you know, again, obviously it would be better uh, is the idea here. Moving on to verse 13 and 14, it says, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. And as much then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if I somehow might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So Paul affirms that he's speaking to Gentiles here. We know Paul sees himself as an apostle of the Gentiles because God called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And you saw that all the way back in Acts 9 when we saw his conversion, when uh, God was speaking to Ananias about Paul at the time with Saul. Um, that he would be, what says, uh, I'll just read it, verse, uh, verse 19 in Acts 9 says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And so Paul magnifies, he says he magnifies his ministry. In other words, he works hard to fulfill this ministry to reach the Gentiles and evangelize the Gentiles because God's called it to it, but also he admits in verse 14 here, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. He has also this agenda or this um, motive, this intention, this heart for obviously his fellow countrymen in his, in his own nation to see some of them saved. And so he does his job in reaching the Gentiles, knowing that God's using his ministry to the Gentiles also to draw back Israel. And so Paul has kind of this complex, multifaceted uh, motive to reach these people or all people for the sake of the Gentiles so that they would be saved and realize who Christ is and for the sake of his own people uh, that they would be drawn via jealousy back to the Father. And so uh, Paul magnifies his ministry because he understands uh, the benefit to all people. Greek verse 15 it says for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world what will their acceptance be but life from the dead <clears throat> again another another question here um it's very similar to what we've already discussed paul kind of just hammering home on this this idea again the rejection if, if their israel's rejection meant reconciliation for the rest of the world for those outside of the camp of israel what will their acceptance be but life from the dead um the language there reminded me of uh, Ezekiel speaking to the dry bones, prophesying to dry bones, um, where he was prophesying to the dry bones, which is a pile of bones in a valley. He spoke to them, started rattling, come together as to form skeletons, skin, flesh wrapped themselves. He breathes, you know, commands breath into them and they, they come alive. Um, so again, bringing life from what is obviously death. Um, and so 
Paul, that's that's kind of the feel I get from using that language. Uh, their acceptance would be life from the dead. So currently separated from Christ, spiritually dead, uh, and yet God can bring life from that. So Paul moves on um, using analogies, um, and we're going to get to a very familiar analogy with the tree. In verse 16, he says, uh, and if the first piece of dough is holy, then the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. It took me a minute to really understand what he was trying to get at there, but the way I broke it down in my head was, okay, if you take this lump of dough and then you pull a piece out of it and you taste it, and that's good. Okay, the rest of it must be good. It must be a good lump of dough. Uh, same thing, obviously, he says, if you don't understand that, then, you know, think of it as a tree, right? Um, he says, if the root is holy, the branches are too, or the inverse of that. If you find that a branch is holy, a branch is good, then it must come from a good root, a holy root. Um, so that's the idea. That's the analogy here. And so that's the one we're all familiar with when we talk about Gentiles being grafted in to the tree as branches. And so that kind of sets up Paul for the rest of this section here. In verse 17, he says, But if some of the branches were broken off, meaning Israel, and you, Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Or in other words, Ephesians 2.13, right? But not in Christ Jesus, who you formerly were far off, but have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he says, Gentiles are represented by those who are of a wild olive tree. Israel is represented by those who are rich-rooted olive tree. The cool thing about this, though, he still says Gentiles are an olive tree. I thought it was pretty cool because they're still of the same kind, right? We know back even from Genesis, that which begets, that produces the same kind, right? So, and it's still an olive tree. It's a wild olive tree. And later, Paul talks about Israel being a cultivated olive tree. And so it's not that we're different or that we can't be grafted in as one family or they're all the same. It's literally that one has been cultivated, one has not. And I even think of, uh, they've been giving the revelation of God, Israel has, for thousands of years. They've been living with God, supposedly, or supposed to be. Um, living with God, the customs and traditions and rituals that they've been doing were to honor God. And in a lot of ways, they weren't doing him out of true faith. And especially in, in this day, they weren't, but they were still doing those things. And so for them to come to Christ, there wasn't a lot they needed to change. There was There's more for Gentiles to kind of assimilate into what God has called us to be. Whereas the, the Jews often had the right traditions, the rituals, they just didn't have the right heart or the faith in doing them. And so again, he speaks of, of Gentiles as a wild olive, but Israel as a cultivated olive. Um, and then there perhaps was a tendency, and I could understand for, for all of us, a tendency to pridefully think that, that we've done something better or that we're better than those who haven't accepted Christ. Paul goes on in verse 18 and says, do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast against them, remember or humble yourself. It is not you who supports the root, but the, ro the root who supports you. The root is obviously God, right? It, we've done nothing to earn our salvation. God has granted us that, and he is the reason we've come alive in Christ and not anything of ourselves. And so we have no reason to boast uh, in our own salvation and, and certainly not to put down anyone who hasn't believed upon Christ. Our goal should be to win them to Christ. In verse 19, he says, you will say then branches were broken off, again, the natural branches, Israel, so that I might be grafted in. And Paul says in verse 20, quite right. He says that's true. Um, 
They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. All right, so we see, again, it, talking about Israel and the rejection and the hardening, that they were, Paul uses language, broken off from that tree, right? They, they, they're not a part of the family because they have not accepted Christ. Verse 20 makes clear, again, that it is not by ethnicity that, that saves anyone. That is only through the atoning work of Jesus Christ and believing upon that work. And then Paul ends that verse 20 again with another warning to not be prideful. It says, do not be haughty, but fear. Excuse me. Um, but instead, that fear is like a healthy reverence, right? And respect and understand that you can easily be cut off from the tree um, just as much, especially if Israel has been. And then in verse 21, he says, if natural branches can be cut off, how much more the people who have not had that historical covenant with God be cut off? In verse 22, it says, Behold, then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So behold, this word behold means to, to look upon, to take in in awe or reverence. And so Paul is asking us to look upon the kindness and severity of God. Um, this, I mean, without truly understanding the severity of what it means to be separated from Christ, we don't really appreciate the kindness of God and the salvation that God offers us, right? Without understanding what the consequences of my sin are, the consequences which ultimately result in hell if I die in my sin, I can't truly appreciate the kindness and the salvation that God offers me. So that's, that's the idea I think Paul is also trying to get across by just saying, behold the kindness and severity of God. And of course, he specifies that again, to those who fell, again, to those who die in their sin, severity, but to those who continue in belief, um, kindness. In verse 23, moving on, says, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, meaning, speaking of Israel, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Again, Israel, natural branches that were, that were originally part of the tree, but cut off. God says, I can graft them in again, if they, but they must not continue in their unbelief. Or in other words, they must believe upon Christ to be grafted back in. So again, another affirmation that it is only by faith in Christ because of the grace of God that we can be grafted into this tree that's called salvation uh, through God. Verse 24 says, for if we were cut from cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, meaning Gentiles, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, is that word again that I mentioned, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Again, same idea that I was just explaining earlier, the assimilation factor, I think is the best way to really kind of put that. There's this culture that God has established with Israel since Abraham all the way through, that they've they've almost got this culture, but again, it was without true faith because they did not believe upon the Messiah. Um, so, but but so, how much easier is it to graft them back into a tree that that really they already are are full, familiar with, as opposed to the Gentiles who very much would come in and need to adjust quite a bit. Um, yeah. Yes, please. Mm -hmm. That part there. Uh, how much more will these who are the natural branches be granted into their own olive tree? And I just thought to myself that this is the goodness of God. That this is, you know, there's the severity, 
but there's a goodness right. in the welcoming that he's, that he's drawn and he's welcoming him back in. Right. And the patience, right? Yes. The patience. patience, the long suffering. Yeah, and I think there's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think there's. Uh, I want to say it's either First Peter or Second Peter um, talks about uh, why why is God slow as you? He's not slow as you count slowness, but he's patient. You know, waiting for all, to, uh, wishing that none will perish. Uh, you know, so um, yeah, that, that, that's really cool. That's really cool. Verse twenty five. Paul continues. He says, "For I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation." Uh, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This word mystery in the original language in both the Greek and the Latin in which the word came from, um, it's less of what we may consider a mystery in terms of, you know, maybe crime shows on television, trying to figure out who did it. Um, but the idea here, at least how they would have understood it, was something that was at one time not understood or not known, but now had been revealed. And so it's not this thing like a cold case on which we'll never know, or that's this mystery that we can never understand. What they would have understood this particular word mystery as was that, okay, there was something we didn't know or didn't understand, and now it's being revealed to us. And so this is what Paul obviously saying, I don't want you to be uninformed of it, and I'm now informing you of this. I'm now revealing this to you. Um, and, and, and it says purpose here that you will not be wise in your own estimation. So basically understand what's happening here, that there has been a partial hardening to Israel, and I am doing something, God is doing something, to bring uh, Gentiles into the family of God. Now it also says, um, this hardening is until all the, full, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So until just means until. Um, and so obviously there's been many debates, we're about to hit the most infamous part of this chapter probably in verse 26, but there's a lot of debates about, or will all Israel be saved, the even past, present, future, um, it basically says that this hardening will stop at a point. Um, and, and that point is whenever, I guess, God sovereignly says, when his, his plan says, all the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. All that have been called, all that are elect, all that, whatever you want to call it, all that come to Christ, um, that that point, when God says that's done, this partial hardening will be lifted. And then in verse 26, he goes on, he says, and all Israel will be saved. Again, kind of a continuation of that sentence. There's no period there. It's actually a semicolon here. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He, so he's quoting, uh, I believe, Isaiah here, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what does that mean, right? All Israel will be saved. So uh, I'm not going to give you my opinion, because I, I, I truly just don't know. But what I will say, I looked up a few theologians, um, and I'll give you they all landed on the same, the few that I looked at, I'm not saying all theologians land on the same, but um, John Piper, John MacArthur, and R.C. Sproul all landed, and I know they're all re really reformed, but they all landed on um, that there is a future generation in which in that generation, that era, all Israel will be saved. But all Israel that is dying now in their sin that does not accept Christ, their, their belief is that they have died in their sin and therefore um, will not realize the kingdom. So that is a view. Uh, take that with, you know, grain of salt or your own study, figure out what you feel like God is saying there. But um, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, I don't even, even then, I wouldn't know what all means, right? I don't, does that mean every single Israelite in that generation will be saved? I don't know. Um, yeah, but that's the question. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. 
Yeah, that and ultimately we know whatever God has for it, it's what it's gonna be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it, it, I don't say it means nothing to me, it, but to your point, like you said, it really is, I still have my responsibility to believe upon Christ, and that's that's what that is. Some things are for the Lord, the secret things are for the Lord, I think Deuteronomy says, and so you just leave those things to him and say, well, you know what that means, I, I'm not God, I don't need to know, you know? Yeah, yeah. 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 Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. I see God as God in promise. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, this is who God is. And, you know, the whole idea of what he's putting, he's putting things together. We can see that by the grafting. And he's not forgetting about anybody. Nobody's left out. Yeah. You know, there's just other opportunities. And there will be great things ahead yeah. for us. So I think it's just God revealing his goodness and his promises to to them. Because there, there could have been some like, oh, no, what's, what's with these guys? Right. You know what I mean? They don't, they don't, want, they don't want the same as us, you know? <laughs> they don't like the same as the word problem. But, yeah, he's talking to the Gentiles, you think how hard it had it been for Paul to tell these people what's the future when he himself has a good opportunity to say, well, look at what I was. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. That's good. When did you get to I was just thinking that when you talk about it, he's talking to the Gentiles and that if you knew that there was no hope for the Jews, would you even want to evangelize? Would mm -hmm. you even want to mm -hmm. consider? Or would they begin to feel superior to the Jew because, right. well, hey, we trusted in Christ now, we right. have it. You know, so Paul's just letting them know that you know, God's not forgotten his right. people, that they're going to be saved. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Right. Supports that don't get haughty thing, too. Yes. Right. 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 Yes. Yeah, we're not done. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That's cool thing. Like we can, we yeah, we can disagree on like or, or not maybe not disagree, but we we can not like how God does things. But the reality is, he he does it the way he wants to do it, and that's totally fine. But that at the, at the end of the day, God is welcoming all people to Himself to to, to enjoy Him in, in Christ. Is you know, it, look at ourselves and look what I used to be, right? And and God offers a, an opportunity for us to to be more like Jesus, um, which is amazing. Uh, moving on in verse 26, uh, well, I just want to read 26 to 27 again and kind of work through again, as Pastor Ron said, there's a quote from Isaiah 59. Um, it's clearly, you know, the, the Isaiah is referring to the Messiah, future Messiah. It says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So a few things here, right? The deliverer will come from Zion. We know Jesus, was the Messiah was supposed to come through the lineage of uh, Abraham, David, Judah specifically, all that, right? Um, so he comes from Israel. He's supposed to remove the ungodliness from Jacob, which another, another way of saying Israel. 
uh, he has a covenant with them. So he's, again, he's faithful to that covenant that he's made with them. Um, again, this idea that he's not done with Israel uh, when I take away their sins. Again, affirmation that it is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ that they would be saved still. And so in verse 28, Paul says, from the standpoint of the gospel, those speaking of the Israel that has not believed upon Christ right now, they are enemies for your for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So again, kind of this idea we were just communicating, right? Like they, right now, I'm not saying the enemies as if we go to war with them, right? But he's saying that they are not of you. They are not believers. They are outside of the camp currently. They are not grafted in currently, right? They are cut off branches. And so they have to believe upon the gospel, otherwise they're others. But from the standpoint of God's choice, and we just talked about God's not done with them because he has a covenant and a promise to his people. And so he says, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. He made a promise to the fathers of Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he's been with them all through history and walked with them. And he's still going to be faithful to that promise, to the relationship that God has had historically with Israel. And in verse 29, Paul says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's pretty straightforward. So God is not giving up on the promise, giving up on the covenant, giving up on his people who he promised he would bring salvation to, who he promised Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars and the sand. Um, God has not given up on that. In fact, he's, he's fulfilled it far beyond what Abraham could have ever imagined he meant by that. Because um, not only is it the descendants of Abraham that get to be a part of that, but it's Gentiles as well, absolutely, as we're seeing in this chapter. Moving on to verse 30. Uh, it says, so these, no, I'm sorry, verse 30, for just as once we were disobedient, yep, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of Israel's disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, meaning Israel, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. A lot going on there, or at least a really complex way of saying what I think is pretty simple, which is just that all fall short of the glory of God and there's mercy available to all people. Um, because every Jew, every Gentile requires the mercies of God because we have fallen short of the glory of God and we deserve hell because of it. Uh, there was a quote that I actually want to read by John Edwards that I actually literally woke up this morning and this is what I saw on Facebook. And I was like, well, that's got to make it into the message. So John Edwards said, many are kept from trusting in God because they think they have committed so much sin that there is not mercy in God enough for them. He therefore must be sensible that there is, an, there is enough mercy as well as power enough to save the most vile returning sinner. That's pretty straightforward. So, again, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we've all committed sin. We've all, I mean, how else can you certainly say that? And, you know, God offers that mercy and says, uh, I'm not going to give you what you deserve, which is hell, but I'm going to give you what you don't deserve, which is uh, eternity with me, which is grace, right? So. That's funny. That which is sin is sin. It doesn't, you didn't have rankings of which sin is worse than what other people do. Right. There's really somebody, how can that person... Except Christ, you know, you're not going to forgive that person. When God looks at it, he, he committed a sin. Right. Doesn't matter if it was this or that, it's still sin. 
we look at you know what well, we well, well, cats got the penal and penal or whatever. Right, right. You don't even know what the words are. Oh, categorizations, yeah. I mean, I think the important part too. Point. The important part of it, right, is is not. But you look at holy. If you really understand what God's holiness is. The smallest of sin is so far separated from him, just as much as like the most vile sin that we can possibly think of, right? So like a, a small little lie in, in, in the context of a holy God is still worthy of being cast to the pit of hell. So yeah, to your point, there really is no ranking when it comes to God what those sins are because he's holy. So the smallest thing, the smallest act of disobedience is, I love that phrase, cosmic treason because it's he's a holy God, he's a perfect righteous God. And so no sin, the smallest, the largest, whatever you wanna call it, uh, can be in his presence. So totally agree with that. Um, verse 33, and this is actually favorite part of the chapter for me. And, and I'll tell you why in a second. Um, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So we've spent all this time working through this very tough and complex theology. And there's debates about this today and what this means. Um, we obviously know God has grafted in Gentiles. Salvation's come to Gentiles as much as it's available to the Jews. Um, and there's things we may not understand in this chapter. Uh, we may not think something is fair. Um, there may be even those we disagree with on some of these positions like Piper or MacArthur. And even I was, I kind of felt even Paul maybe didn't even fully understand what he was writing at times. Um, and what I mean by that is we can never fully wrap our heads around the things of God, right? And, and why he does the things, he, why he does them the way he does the things that he does. Um, but he ultimately kind of reverts and pivots to just this posture of worship of just, again, acknowledging the holiness of God, the, the fact that he has set a party so outside of our time, space, and matter and what we can ever think of, he just reverts to, in the, in the context of tough theology and not under, maybe not fully understanding these things, um, who God is ultimately, which is, again, I'll just read it again, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, right? How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways, for who, and he quotes Isaiah, uh, I think Isaiah and Job here, uh, how unsearchable, I'm sorry, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him. And then he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory. When something is from you, through you, and to you, I have no, I have no right to say you've done something that I don't like. It's, I mean, he's created all things, through him all things are sustained, to him, all things are worship and, and should glorify him. Um, it doesn't really matter what I think about whether I like what he does or not. Um, but this is the divine plan of God that he's revealed to us to the extent he's revealed it to us, which is that he has grafted in Gentiles, again, to make Israel jealous, to draw Israel back to himself. Ultimately, the goal of God is to draw all people to himself, that we'd all be able to enjoy him and worship him and glorify him. Um, and so... Really, it just makes you rest kind of in the fact that I'm not God. He is, and thank God I'm not. So, yeah, amen.